Hi everyone, welcome to the Raw Show with Michael McDonald and I have a very special guest. We have Matt Jones joining me today. Matt, thanks for being a guest on the show. No problem, Michael. Glad to be here. So Matt is the founder of a company called Honey and is one of Australia's leading entrepreneurs and has developed the first tech startup to propel the beauty and wellness industry into the digital age. This, this app, this, this tech startup that Matt created allows people to book, cancel, review and search more than 200,000 beauty services across Melbourne and Sydney all from your phone. Sounds very convenient, Matt, to, to, to tell you the absolute Mate, truth. that was a fantastic pitch. Do you want to be on my board? <laughs> it's it's uh, I, I just, just, need, just reading that, then I just thought, oh, how convenient is that? But <laughs> I, I thought we'd start with your background, though, that's all right. So for people that don't know who you are, could you share with us where you were born and what it was like for you growing up? Yeah, not a problem. Um Yes, I'm, I'm Matt Jones. I'm based in Melbourne in Australia, and I have been for most of my life. Uh, I grew up in a town called Essendon, or basically just um, just outside in Melbourne, but just near the CBD. And um, childhood, nothing special. Um, mum stayed home mum. Dad was a, a teacher, a primary, high school, and university teacher. Um, I think he's what got me into, uh, or gave me my tech savviness, I guess, because um, I was born 1985, so when I was a kid, computers were just sort of coming out, right? Like, I remember some of my fondest memories as a kid was, um, you know, going to computer swap meets and, like, building computers at the age of, you know, eight and nine. And as my dad was probably at the cutting edge of that, um, he was teaching computer systems engineering at, um, you know, at the uh, a university in Melbourne uh, pretty early on, like, early 90s and and whatnot too. So we always had, you know, better internet than anyone else. We always had better computers than anyone else. It was fantastic. Uh, and that's honestly, I think I look back on that. And if I were to reflect uh, from a very young age, I learned how to solve problems because nothing worked, like nothing worked by default. When you put together a computer or a, like a, a hard drive or, you know, actually building it and then actually trying to get software running on it, like, you know, the status quo is it's broken. You've got to figure it out for yourself. And that's something that's sort of always stuck with me. And I look through every part of my life and everything I've done, and it's always about just relentless, persistent problem solving. Um, but, like, move, moving through, uh, I guess, um, you know, uh, I went to a, a state school, a high school, and it was pretty uh, multicultural one. So one thing that, like, all of my friends spoke multiple languages, and that kind of stuck with me. And, and so when I got out of high school, the only thing I wanted to do was learn a language. I didn't care about anything else. Actually, I didn't know what I wanted to do, to be honest. So I went to university, uh, learned Japanese, ended up going over to Japan and studying over there as well. Um, and from, you know, from that... Um, you know, I just learned that, okay, I can pretty much learn anything. So uh, I never really stopped learning. Uh, I've ended up doing, doing like four degrees now. So I've done two masters and, and two bachelors, all sort of different things. But, um, you know, that sort of thirst for knowledge and learning hasn't really stopped. And I've applied that in my career and my business. So in probably my first sort of foray into startups was um, when I was in university. So actually, I nearly got kicked out of university as I spent probably the first, yeah, probably the first two semesters, um, I failed almost every subject. It was just ridiculous because oh. I was just spending all my time building a web hosting company. 
and I knew nothing about web hosting. Like literally, like, you know, I had to learn it all from scratch. I had a mate online who, to be honest, I didn't even know, like I never met him, but we were just mates online. Um, we met on, you know, on ICQ and we said, oh, hell, let's, uh, you know, through different forums, let's build a web hosting company. So we, we got one up and running. We got a registered a business over in the States and, you know, like we're like, when we started it, we were like 18 years old and we're acting like a professional company. I remember having the, the stock photos of, you know, people in suits and, and like, a, like a big team on the website and everything. But um, it was, all, it was, all, it was all, all pretend. But we scaled up pretty quickly, to be honest. And we had hundreds of clients. And, you know, it got to the point where I was spending all my time, like 24-7, just at home in my room at my parents' house, just like answering customer queries, solving problems when things weren't working. You know, this was all way before cloud hosting. And um, basically, we just rented out servers in um, Atlanta over in the States. And, you know, we'd rent out a big server and then we'd um, put it into smaller packages and sort of sell that on at at a markup. And it was a pretty good business because, you know, we'd rent out a server at 1,000 gigs a month of bandwidth and we'd be able to oversell it for about 8,000 gigs. And uh, we made a good profit off that. But it got to the point where I had to choose between university and, and uh, the business I was doing. And um, I think luckily the university won out in the end. Uh, it was just killing me. Where, you know, we certainly weren't earning enough money to hire staff. But it was pretty good, you know, 18, 19 years old, having your own company and, and bringing in some sales. But you're uh, one of those people that would actually like, rather than doing your your essays or your revising for exams, you would be learning how to, to do more for this web company. Pretty much, yeah. I remember yeah. the amount of exams I rocked up to just the night before with the textbook open, trying to thinking, oh, how hard can this be? Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm figuring out how to write <laughs> Roar Apache during the day. I'm sure you yeah. can figure out Accounting 101. But sure enough, not failed. <laughs> no good. And actually, that, that kind of hit me because I thought I, I sucked at studying. Like, I thought I was really bad at it. But it turns out, to be good at it, you just got to actually study. And that's, that's something I learned later on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like the, the exams that you do is just a test of how much you can remember, isn't it? As opposed to how much you know. Yeah, pretty much. Actually, to be honest, I was um, having a conversation earlier today. But, you know, that's, that's why I love languages because... You know, a lot of um, exams, you've got to focus, like you've got to, you've got to narrow your learning so you can focus specifically sort of what's on the exam. But the great thing about languages is you can just go out and just learn everything, right? And the more you learn, the better because it helps you network more. And that's why I just like, I really take up languages. Like I love them. And, um, you know, yeah. Um, so go, going, going on from there, um, so I gave that up, went and studied, took it seriously, got a job at a casino. I was working in casino for like, I don't know, four years or, or five years. Um, and uh, then I ended up uh, graduating, finishing up university and, and then got a job in commercial banking. And that's where I actually got to wear the suit and tie. And that was, uh, you know, I actually became a, a proper busy business person, which is really cool. Um, didn't last long though. I probably spent, I don't know, four or five years in that career or, I can't even remember to be honest, but it was, it was fantastic. Like working in a bank coming straight out of university is brilliant. You get a good salary, you know, it's very quick to get promotions. They teach you everything you need to know. And, you know, like I'm, I'm coming in as a kid and uh, pretty much, and, you know, I'm handed clients, which, you know, do billions in revenue and turnover and it's a huge opportunity. And they, they flew me around the world and, that was fantastic, but uh, to be honest, it didn't didn't last long. It wasn't long before I'm like, 
already like side hustling, already like starting to build my own stuff and realizing, okay, I want to do this and didn't, didn't last long. So like by the end of the four years or four or five years of banking, I'm just like, I have to, I have to do this. I have to go do another startup. I can't do this. Um, so what happened to the, the web hosting company then? Did that just stop when, when you left uni and then got the job? I mean, what, what happened to that? Sold it, mate. It was fantastic. I bought a car from that. It was good, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, so ended up um, negotiating a sale and we just sold the customer list. We sold oh, it to a big no. company and, you know, they gave, they gave us a good payout. Um, I bought a car. I got to travel overseas for like a good year and a half from that money. And that was fantastic. Yeah. It was, I guess it was a kind of exit, but not the kind of exit you read about. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't hear that. You don't hear that very often, do you? So what, what did you start off doing then? So banking, you mentioned that you were already like trying to think of something new to do. What was your next best thing that you came up with? Yeah, basically, uh, I tried to connect. Um, there's a local sort of classifieds, like kind of Craigslist. It's called Gumtree here. I think you guys might even have it over in, in UK as well. But We do, yeah. Uh, yep, so I, I basically built a script to connect Gumtree and eBay together. Uh, so essentially, you know, people who wanted to buy stuff on Gumtree to connect them to uh, like items and services and stuff on eBay. And, um, you know, it, the end result is, just to, to cut this off, was it sounded like a really good idea. <laughs> you know, it sounded like, you know, oh, this is a great idea. Why don't I do that? And, you know, it kind of worked to a certain extent. Like um, people were transacting on it. Like it had actually like um, messaged them automatically on Gumtree saying, hey, we found this. And, you know, we got a lot of praise for it. Like people were like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, thank you very much. But, you know, didn't, couldn't generate any revenue. Everyone wanted to pay cash and couldn't hold the transaction. So it was a nice idea, but it certainly didn't turn into a business or anything I could live off. And to be honest, that's kind of like, that's when it really sort of hit me because it failed. And I'm glad at a certain point I called failure on it and, and sort of hung up the towel because um, I, I learned a lot from that. And it also made me realize that I have no effing idea what I'm doing here. Like, you know, I, I want to do this, but I am so far behind everyone else. And like, I'm like, uh, you know, I can, I can execute, I can do stuff. And I'm, I'm pretty, pretty smart and pretty good at figuring things out. But I don't, I don't know what I'm doing or what I want to do. So at that point, I realized I need to learn from, I need to be around successful people. You know, they always say that, yeah, you know, you can learn from your failures, but realistically, you don't. I think you learn more from successful people and seeing how, you know, people are winning and how they're going really well. So um, I decided at that point, I'm, I'm not going to stop at nothing. I'm going to find someone who's building a really good startup. It's going really well and just learn from them. And so at that point, um, I joined Delivery Hero um, at a very early stage. So, you know, Hungry House over in the UK, it's the same, um, well, it was the same mother company out of Berlin. And um, so it's online takeaway ordering, um, a bit like Grubhub over in the States. And uh, essentially, the early stage in Australia, I took them to 4,400 restaurants, um, set up the sales teams, uh, you know, brought on multiple verticals. I got the opportunity to be based over in Berlin as well, um, you know, meeting the founders and everything like that and uh, retraining the sales teams. And I found I was actually pretty good at sales and sales leadership. Uh, must have come from, you know, all my hustling and everything, but like I'd never been formally trained. I'd never had a sales gig before, so I just kind of fell into the role and it kind of worked really well. And then things just kind of spiraled out from there. Uh, when I was in Berlin, I met one of the founders of Groupon. Um, and basically, 
uh, within 24 hours, um, I'd signed on with his new company called Quando, which is um, uh, table reservations at restaurants. And uh, the very next day, I was on a flight with a budget over to Singapore uh, to set it up and basically um, launched it over in Singapore. And uh, that was, yeah, that went really well. Within five months, we overtook the local competitor, Cho. And it was really cool, like building a, a startup from scratch in another, you know, Asian country. And um, from there, that gave me like a lot of experience. And at that point, I thought, oh, this is fantastic. It's going really well. They ended up getting acquired, to be honest, uh, for about um, 400 million bucks, which is just brilliant. It was just mind-boggling the amount of money he made. But at that point, I'm thinking, holy crap, I have to do this for myself. This is fantastic. Um, but uh, it didn't stop there, actually. That's when um, I got a call from the founders of Zomato. And, um, you know, I'd lived over in India previously and, you know, I knew all about Zomato. And um, ultimately, uh, they wanted to buy Urban Spoon in Australia. And so they brought me on to lead the expansion into Australia. So, uh, you know, this was a uh, start of 2015. I basically flown back from Singapore, set up shop in Melbourne. They bought Urban Spoon for about $70 million and then, I found myself with a community manager and um, one of the senior VPs from India sitting in Melbourne with an app with 10 million users. And it was just us. We, we had to figure out what to do with it from there. But um, we very quickly monetized it and, you know, hired a hundred employees and took it to you know, nearly a million bucks in revenue a month uh, in the space less than 12 months. And that was huge success. And uh, that sort of leads me to where I am now. But at that point I'm like, got to do this for myself. <laughs> So what did you learn from, because just, just making notes then, the, the list of all the things that you managed to do and then dive on and the opportunities that you were able to take advantage of. I mean, I, I took note of at least five. You know, there was at least like five things that, that you did or the experiences that you had from uni all the way up to Zomato and then to, to Honey Today. Like what, what did you learn from all those experiences before you launched Honey at that point? Because you, you had a lot of experience, a lot of potential failures or successes. You must have learned quite a lot to then be able to say, okay, I can feel like I can do it myself now. Because up, up until that point, I'd imagine you've been like more more of an assistance to it but honey seems to me to be at least a thing that you've then decided to, to take the rain yeah yourself. so what did you learn before you decided to, to dive in yeah it's interesting um you know you learn a lot about different elements of the business and that's the great thing about being supposed to start up because they throw responsibility at you right so it's not just like I'm hired as a salesperson and I just sell or anything. You get to see all facets of the business. It's kind of like a little bit like Wizard of Oz, right? Because you get to see behind the curtain and you realize that, you know, some of these big, massive, multi-billion dollar businesses are just like, you know, a bunch of people who've put it together. And, you know, you see sort of what's going on behind it, how, how much of a shambles the, you know, the CRM, the customer relationship management system is and the sales process, how it's just hacked together or sticky taped together. And, you know, you get a you, main thing that I learned was that um, it can be done, right? Like, the confidence of seeing it done over and over and seeing all these different variety of German and Indian businesses and, and seeing it built from scratch, you learn that, Hey, it, it can be done. I can, I can do this from scratch and take it all the way through. Once you know, you can do that. That's pretty much all you need because you figure it out as you go along. And it's kind of that, that big shock cause you work in big corporate and, and you know, you think there's like, 
there's some kind of like magic source to it? Do you think there's some kind of like, okay, well, this is a, you know, the bank I was at was a trillion dollar company and it, it's, you know, got 10,000 employees or, or more than that. And you just like have this kind of respect, like it's this massive thing and you could never kind of achieve or build something like that. But you seriously can, right? Like it's just about starting small and taking the next step forward and then building and building. And then the rest of it all comes down to who you hire and the people. And that's probably the one thing that I got out of Delivery Hero Kondo and Zomato. It's, it's how to hire amazing people and build a great team because ultimately I'm only ever going to like at the start. Sure. I'm, I'm hacking away at it. I'm building it. I'm setting the vision. But after that, most of the execution, you just can't do it yourself. You have to have an amazing team to do it for you. You have to have them incentivized. You have to have them loving what they're doing and really believing in your vision. And you've got to have trust because when you're doing this and you're, you know, putting your life towards it, you know, traveling from country to country on a whim and working seven days a week, you know, working at airports and doing the most outrageous shit. Like literally you have to love the people you're with and you have to respect them because you become like a family. What was your next steps once you decided that you were going to start this, start Honey and, and start helping people in the, the health and wellness side of things with their, their, their bookings and the services they wanted. How did you get it started? Because I imagine you had a lot of ideas, but thanks to your experience, you have a lot in terms of, okay, in order to do this, I need to do X, Y, and Z, and one, two, and three, and four, and make sure it all integrates right. So what was the, the next steps for you? A good question. I'm really trying to think back. What was like one of the first things we did? I think, you know, ultimately we'd, we'd left Zomato. So, um, you know, a, a bunch of us left Zomato to do this and, and, and get this going. And we had one client in particular, uh, Chris from Breen, which is a, a pretty high-end salon on Collins Street. And he was the one who originally gave me the idea and said, listen, you've got to do this for the beauty industry. And I think the first thing I, I realized was, like we don't know what's really going to nail it in this this market. We can have a look and see what other people are doing overseas, and there are plenty of people doing it in the states and over in uh, Europe. Uh, but ultimately, you know, there's so many different ways we can attack the problem. Do we want to do bookings? Do we want to do um, websites for them? Do we want to do um, advertising for them? Like, there's so many different verticals we can do. So, the first thing I always do is just go out and speak to customers. And so, I, I think when there's a space of like a couple of weeks, we'd spoken to over a hundred salon owners we just like forced our way in found the owner chatted to them and just did a full discovery to learn about their business and then from there we became pretty apparent that um most of them are getting completely ripped off online like they're paying five to ten thousand dollars for a wordpress website even today i'm meeting owners who are paying like fifteen to twenty thousand dollars over a three to four year period for just a wordpress theme you know they're getting completely ripped off for their web presence so I thought, well, as a, as a first step, why don't I just do it for them? So really the first thing we did was we physically walked the streets and, um, you know, walked into every single salon and found, I uh, took GPS coordinates of the doorstop, menus, their prices, descriptions, inside, outside photos, uh, you know, outside photos so you can find it on the street, like everything. And so we did that for about four and a half thousand salons in Melbourne. We covered an area of like four, 5,000 square kilometers on foot over a period of months, right? And then, um, you know, and I thought, okay, well, why don't we just get this online? And then when we did, we compared our database to 
Google, like literally searching for them. And 60% of the salons in Melbourne could only be found on our website, which is bizarre. You know, we'd sort of like as a, as a first step, really sort of trying to like have an impact in the industry. We became the web presence for the majority of the beauty industry in Melbourne. And it's like, okay, we should raise some money now. <laughs> yeah, it seems, it seems at least to me like a massive like, light bulb of, of validation there. You must have like, tested the water. Okay, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just have a look. You probably didn't even go in with, with the intention of like, let's compare ourselves to Google. You probably <laughs> tried it and just see what happened. And it was like, oh, oh, more than half. Okay, that must mean, yeah, it's, it's probably worth doing. Uh, it's probably <laughs> worth committing yourself to. <laughs> Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it, to be honest. I still remember I still remember when we had, like, the first visitors on our website. Our CTO, who, who built the, the content management system, which it all went live on, you know, he was like, uh, it's probably just bots. And then we got to 100 users, and he's like, oh, it's probably just more bots from Google. And then we got to, a, you know, 1,000 users, and, you know, now we're over a million users. And it's just like, okay, when, when are we going to validate it? When are we going to start believing that this is having a massive impact? You know, I still look at it today. You know, it's not a huge, it's not a major part of our business now because we've moved on and there's so many other ways we're helping business owners. But I look at it now and it's a flabbergast. Like even today, I would have thought someone would come in and just with more money and destroy us. But I looked at the stats the other day and it's like since we launched that and, you know, we're in this small little office we got for free and just going out and visiting venues, we've had over 40 million search impressions from Google. It's just flabbergasting. We've just soaked up all this traffic for all these venues owners, which they wouldn't have gotten if we didn't go out and put their, their sites live. Yeah, I mean, if if I happen to just use Google, then they want to get in forty percent, right? Because you're you're at least sixty percent. So mm. <laughs> it's a massive it's a massive jump when you take over half the, the the actual searching of a particular service within a within an area. That's that that seems pretty huge. What if someone mm. listening to this was Let's just say two or three years before you you started. So this, these could be people that are in university. These could be people that are mm. in a job. These can be people that are starting out. You know, be people that were like actually in the weeds a little bit, as opposed to slowly getting themselves out. You know, like people that are struggling to find out what it worked. You know, if it's going to work, if they're able to still do this, maybe they're contemplating giving up and maybe getting a job or whatever it happens to be. You can sort of picture that in your mind, the type of person that I'm, mm. I'm talking about. What advice would Absolutely. you give to someone that's in that position? So, I mean, if you haven't taken the leap and you haven't sort of started it, then, you know, I definitely say go and, go and learn. Like, go and learn from people who are doing it and are doing it really well. Find very easy to go to, no matter what geography you are, go to um, go to accelerators, go to incubators. You know, they always do demo days. They always do uh, intakes and interviews and just find companies that are successful in getting in. They always need a hand, like no matter what it is, and just like get an internship there, work for free, do whatever you need to do and just be around people who are succeeding and you'll just soak it up. And you'll also, you'll build your own confidence, which is extremely important. If you have taken the leap and sort of you're already doing it, um, you know, there's so many things I could say about that, but I think probably the number one is just really focus, like focus on your customers or whatever segment you're in, understand them as best you can. And when I, when I meet founders and I look at people who I sort of, um, you know, aspire to be like, and 
and who I'm, I'm quite, uh, you know, proud to see succeed. I look at them and always they're the people who are just most um, persistent about really understanding their customers to the fact, to the point where they're just like always in front of them, always talking to them, whether it's a, a B2C app, whether, you know, direct to consumers or something like Tinder or whether it's, you know, a B2B app or even an enterprise app, you know, just like knocking on random doors and trying to get into corporates and learning about people's roles so you can help them better. And no matter what you're doing, just you cannot go wrong if you just learn as much as you can about your customers. And I see a lot of founders who don't do that right. Fortunately, who sort of like, you know, build it, get it out there and try and learn from marketing or A-B testing and, you know, all that sort of stuff like that. But there's no, there's no substitute for just going out and chatting to people. I, <clears throat> I definitely second that. I mean, it seems, it seems like a tried and true thing that not many people still believe works or still believe is, is worth doing because a lot of people do want to try and, and scale things quite quickly nowadays, don't they? It's all about how big can you make it and, and, and mm. all those sorts of things. But, um, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, there's, there's definitely value in that. I'm not saying you're not allowed to do that. But for someone <laughs> that's, that's in a startup position, you know, just you having 10 people that you've listened to that you then solve their, their problems or create something to help those 10 people. That's better than trying to scale and end up with nobody because you're not really customer centric, you know? So you've got to try and find that balance. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're getting reasonably into the weeds now regarding like the lessons that you've learned and the different, <laughs> the different aspects of, of what you've had to go through and how you've got to the other side. Is there anything, mm that you can think of that you haven't said yet? So we're coming at this from a, a leaving no stone unturned approach now, Matt. So um, is there anything that springs to mind from what you've said so far that you think could be valuable to, the, to our listeners? Hmm. Hmm. Good question. So not really, I can't, I think maybe, um, maybe if we go into a bit more about sort of where Honey's at now and, and the journey that I've taken since then, because, you know, very early days, we just sort of hacked it together, but we've been in a very fortunate position where we've been able to raise money, right? And, um, you know, that's been, uh, that's sort of been responsible for a lot of our growth to date. So um, I think perhaps maybe if I talk about maybe some of the changes that we've made in the company over, over the past six to 12 months, because uh, this is one thing that isn't really advertised um, you know, in, in a lot of the media that I do, but it's an important learning too, is that we actually made a pretty hard pivot when we were doing the business because things weren't working out so well. And I'm quite comfortable talking about that, but I think it's really important that people hear about, you know, it's not all huge successes in, in businesses and startups. You go through some pretty hard learnings too. So, and I think that one of the most important lessons I get out of that, which it's important to tell a story, is that you know, you've got to know when to make changes in your business. You've got to know when to call it quits too. Because we had a vertical which was, for all intents and purposes, going extremely well. Uh, you know, we were, we were selling advertising on the website and that was pretty much the focus of the business. We were, you know, I had salespeople in the field, quite a few people were bringing good revenue, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a month in revenue very easily. And this is great. Like we, we'd only raised, you know, 400 grand at that point. So we're in a pretty good situation with this business. But in the end, like when, when I went out and chatted to um, more business owners, 
like the more and more I learned, I realized that we weren't even solving their problems. We'd, we'd gotten found some, we listened to a bunch of owners who needed more customers and we went and built a vertical based on that and tried to sell it to everyone else. And it kind of got to the point where like we're generating revenue and things are going very well. But, you know, I realized that we weren't really like solving a lot of people's needs from a, a mass point of view. And we we're trying to convince ourselves that it was working. We're doing well based on the revenue we we're doing. But it's at that point I'm really glad that um, we we met a, a pretty prominent venture capital firm in Australia and some other mentors and basically went through the business. We chatted about it a lot more and we realised that you know I knew it in my gut, but we weren't we weren't really doing what I wanted to be doing. We're focusing on in the beauty industry. We're focusing on acquisition, helping them get new customers. When realistically, what they need is they need a way to help with their regulars because beauty salons are all about regulars, people coming back again and again and again. And that was one of the hardest things I did because I literally, you know, I had to um, pretty much hit the reset button on the, on, on the company, shut down the vertical, um, ended up letting go of staff as well, and then starting again from a completely new angle. But because I had the confidence to do that and because, you know, um, I made that decision when we did, uh, it allowed us to sort of, you know, allowed, allowed us to grow out this new vertical and it's where we are today now. And we've built probably the best salon management system in the world. Um, it's doing stuff that no one else can do in terms of online bookings. It's getting new customers, uh, sorry, it's getting regular customers back in for salon owners, completely automating it for them. And now their businesses are completely reliant on our system. It's changing it for them, saving them, you know, 60, 70 hours a month on the phone to customers. And that's like massively changing their lives. You know, you've got salon owners now which have free time to sort of focus on developing their staff, which they didn't have before. And I look at that now and what we've been able to achieve. And I look back at what we were doing previously, just selling like banner ads on our website and trying to monetize our traffic. And it's, there is no comparison between the value that we're doing and so you know that's one thing that like I really want to get across that it's important that even if things are going well to always question look at them going you know am I really adding a lot of value uh, regardless even if the metrics are looking good and the revenue is going well this just for someone that just for someone that, that doesn't really understand the language that you use and what what do you mean when you say vertical so you mentioned investors and things like that which I'm assuming people will, will understand but what would you say a vertical was yeah, gotcha. So ultimately a, a vertical is kind of a business line, right? So for example, we're in the, the beauty industry. One vertical could be, um, you know, an advertising arm. So we're, we're taking money for advertising to help them get new clients. Another vertical within the same industry could be um, salon management or software. So giving them a piece of software so they can manage their calendar, manage their staff, all those sorts of things like that. Another example could be like if you look in the food tech industry, um, you know, one vertical is online reservations, like reserving at restaurants online. Another one is online takeaway ordering. You know, so vertical is basically just a, another line of the business within the same industry. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. We get it. Cool. Yeah. It's just for, and, uh, for people that, that might not fully understand it. That's all, Matt. So yeah, keep going. Absolutely. And then, uh, it, so I'm always being reminded to just focus, 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 you know, absolutely nail your vertical, absolutely nail sort of the arm that you're in. But, you know, the beauty industry, there's so much we can do here. You know, uh, as an example, you know, we're in salon management, we've got the website, which, you know, we we're earning good money on advertising, but we just give it away for free now. So, you know, anyone who wants online bookings through it, anyone who wants advertising space on it, we don't really charge for it anymore. We're just, you know, we're trying to help businesses out. 
but the salon management business is going really well. But every day I get asked, Matt, can you help me hire staff? Can you help me find apprentices? Um, can you, I've got all these educational contents. Can you help me get this online too? And so these are all like different verticals and it's kind of like going down the rabbit hole a bit with an industry. And I just see the future and I just think, you know what, this is like, Michael, man, like I honestly believe the beauty industry is like the hotel industry like 15 years ago. There is so much you can do in this industry to help people. I think as well with um, <clears throat> the beauty industry, it's all very, it's all very hands-on. It's all very people-orientated as well. Because one of my previous businesses was personal training and also tennis coaching mm. as well. So within the, the activity industry, so to speak, or the health or the, the wellness industries, it's all, it's all very like person-to-person orientated. Absolutely, and, yeah. It's, and, it's one-on-one relationships, right? You yeah, know, you know each other's name. You're looking at each other in the eye. It's very personalized. And I like how you said with the repeat customers as well. And a lot of them are built on like um, loyalty bonuses and you know little, little coupons to keep people coming back. And and all those little things is just enough to keep keep people coming back for more and keep the, the repetition coming in, which is quite it's quite a good way of of running things. And I guess with your with your system that you've created as well, it just takes that online and takes a lot of the grunt work out of it, I would imagine. Absolutely. It makes their lives a hell of a lot easier. And to be honest, a lot of them don't know how to do this, which we can do at scale very easily for them and completely automated. But, you know, above and beyond that, there's feedback, right? Like in the beauty industry, you get a haircut or, you know, um, maybe personal training is a little bit different, but ultimately like you do a session or you get a haircut and then, um, you know, the beauty salon is a perfect example because sort of right at the end of your haircut, you know, they're holding up a mirror and going like, so how do you feel? What do you, what do you think? And, you know, they're really trying to emphasize and make you look and feel beautiful, make you look and feel good. And it's very hard to get honest feedback out of customers because it's not like you're going to turn around and look the stylist in the eye and say, I hate it. Or, you know, like, it's like, this is not what I wanted at all. Because they're all like smiling at you, beaming with the mirrors and all that sort of stuff like that. They're kind of like an artist. You don't want to upset them. So to be honest, this is one of the things that Fabergast made, but like no one was getting feedback, like honest, candid feedback in this industry. And that's one of the first things we did. We literally just, when you have finished your booking, you know, two or three minutes after you walk out of the salon, you're getting an SMS asking, so, like, what did you think? And, um, you know, recording your feedback. And now 56% of all, all bookings provide feedback to our salon owners. So, you know, immediately we've got salon owners who, uh, you know, we see it, like, 12, 20 times a day they're, they're checking what customers said about their haircuts from their staff because they're obsessed with getting feedback in so they can retrain their staff or, or deliver a better service. And I think that's one of the things that's going to have the biggest impact on the industry because it just sort of wasn't there before. One of the things that you touched on, and I don't, I don't think we, we've had the chance to really look at it um, in a bit more detail, was <clears throat> you had to raise money initially in order mm. to take... Your, your company to where it is. So it wasn't, a, yeah. you had the ideas, you had the, the execution, but sometimes money is in fact the, the only barrier that you have in order to, to do the things that you want to do. So what was the process like? What was the, the conversations that you had? I mean, did you have to negotiate? What sort of tactics did you use? This is probably the, the last thing that we get to before we, we get to the last couple of questions. So what was that like in terms of being able to raise money and, and then being able to take 
the the idea of honey and, and really explode it? Yeah, uh, pretty straightforward. I mean, I, I worked with some very experienced people who've invested in some you know, major companies um, who've done very well. And ultimately, uh, it was a bit intimidating at first because I assumed the worst. I assumed everyone was sort of out to get you, as a lot of founders do. But you realize pretty early on that after chatting to, the first thing I did was I just went and chatted to a bunch of founders who'd raised uh, previously uh, from from the same people. And you learn very easily, like, okay, very, very straight on that, no, these, these guys are fine. They're awesome, you know, they'll help you through it. And once you take that sort of intimidation away, it's a very straightforward process. You know, our lawyer, their lawyer, we negotiate terms. Uh, I think it's the scene's gotten a lot better, um, particularly in Australia over the past few years. Um, but no, there weren't any really surprises. And, you know, we're fine on valuation. Uh, didn't really have to negotiate too hard on that. And the amount of money we wanted was fantastic. We actually ended up knocking back uh, more than half of the amount of money. We, we ended up raising like uh, 1.25 in the last one, but like we had over 2 mil on offer um, as well. And that was a very interesting process trying to figure out who we're going to let invest <laughs> to. But um, that's a nice position to be, but I'll tell you what, it's stressful when it happens because there's, you know, universally, if you try and like cut everyone's amount down, you're just like, you know, pissing off everyone basically. So it's not actually a nice position to be in upsetting all your investors universally. But um, what can you do, right? Um, yeah, no, so the process is pretty straightforward and it's pretty easy to meet people who've done it before so you can get advice on what's normal and what's not. And then, you know, it's all just sort of all hands on deck, just sort of waiting until the money hits the bank account because you can't celebrate. And even if everything's signed and done, you cannot celebrate until you've got the money in the account. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, the, the amount of like almost yeses or maybes that you might get in, in your industry must be at least in, in, in the three-figure range. Uh, yeah. So, um, if, if you've got any advice for someone that maybe wants to go down the the, the tech startup route or the app route or all that side of thing, and I guess you could you would angle it in a way of if you were to do it again, so if you were to start again, what would you do differently? That might be something to, to add into your answer, so to speak. But if someone wanted to go down your path, what advice would you have? Yeah, gotcha. I think... Um... You know, when I first started off, uh, the team was an important consideration and I was quite lucky because I was working with people I'd worked with previously um, at Tomato and, and got them across. But, you know, I think back to the first time I started a startup and, and um, some of the other founders that I know, and I, I think not being too, just going out and trying to meet as many people as you can uh, and trying to find like-minded people is really important. I think I was too shy. When I first started off, I was kind of like, well, it was really weird now because like now I'm on radio, like all like, you know, in PR just talking about my ideas and what I want to do in the future and not really caring. And, you know, I know it all comes down to execution and, and it's, it's very easy to just to, to tell people about what you're going to do in the future. But ultimately when I first started off, I think it was very guarded, right? Like I was very like, I've got this great idea. So what I'm going to do is not tell anyone about it and keep it to myself and then try and like build it. And then, cause if I tell anyone they'll rip me off and do it and then I'm sort of dust. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, not being shy about it and just going out and telling as many people as you can, because uh, ultimately like you can do it, but you need other people to help you. 
And that's the most important thing as a founder, like recruiting other people to believe in your vision and doing that. So you just got to get out there, pitch, get on stage every opportunity you can and tell people about what you want to do, inspire them with your passion. Maybe the idea sucks, but they like you, you know, <laughs> and then because they come in, they, they help you develop that idea even further. Because ultimately, like, I'm a non-tech co-founder I don't know what I'm doing with coding and so the first thing I was worrying about was getting a coder or getting someone I could actually develop and I wouldn't have been able to achieve that if I didn't go out there and just you know scream it from the top of the buildings about my ideas and what I wanted to do and uh, I think that's really important uh, like you know attracting a, a team and, and just sort of getting the word out there about what you're doing mm, yeah awesome well last couple of questions for you Matt again I appreciate you being a, a guest on the show what what sure. resources do you have for someone? Because you, you clearly you, you run a tech startup. You must have an element of <clears throat> prioritizing your day. Maybe you've got some some routines that you have to go through. Maybe you've, you've structured your day in a particular way. What does your day look like, and and how do you to keep yourself productive? <laughs> I am. I'm going to be honest here. I'm probably like the least inspirational person you'll ever meet in terms of productivity. Um, I've got no methodology. I, I don't read books. I don't do any self-help stuff. Um, I literally just work my ass off, Michael. Like, you know, <laughs> seven days a week, every hour I can squeeze out of it. And the same with my team too. Uh, in terms of prioritization, you know, it's just, for me, it's important that I just keep chatting to my team. So, you know, my day is just one-on-ones on the phone to everyone making sure everyone's got exactly what they need to do their job. And if they don't, then my job is to solve that. Um, apart from that, you know, in terms of resources and everything, like, yeah, I don't really have anything. Sorry, man. I wish I could. I would, if, if you're fine, then you let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's lots of things that you could do, but I guess it's a good thing that you've not, you've not had to or you've not needed to as well. I'd imagine if, if you were at a point where you really needed to, then you probably would. It's, it's not like it's uh, it's out of your remit to do those things. I guess it's probably just more of a, a want or a need that, that needs to be filled that you haven't had mm. to fill, which is quite. I guess it's a, it can be a good thing, you know. If if you need to to massively structure everything that you do, <laughs> then there's probably a not so great reason for that, you know. <clears throat> All right. So last couple of questions then for you, Matt. Yeah. Um, before we before we get there, uh, if someone wants to find out a bit more about you, where can they go? So this is your chance to share websites and links and social media as well. So go for it. Yeah, sure. I'm not that active to be honest, but um, you know, or you can anyone can add me on LinkedIn, and I'm happy to uh, share advice or answer questions or, or chat. I mean, just look up Matthew Jones on LinkedIn, or, or look up Honey, which is H O N E. Um, on LinkedIn, you'll find me pretty easily there, uh, or and our website, which is honey.com.au, which is H-O-N. Uh, you can actually just go to H-O-N.ee and you'll, you'll find our website and check it out. All right, cool. Last question for you. And I ask everyone this and we've had, we've had answers ranging from funny to quite strange. So we can blow the, blow everything wide open with this one. And it's, what would you like the world to know about you that it doesn't already know? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, good question, man. Uh, I guess, um, yeah, one thing we didn't cover was, you know, uh, well, top of mind, I, I absolutely love movies, right? And um, if uh, when Honey's all, all, all done and, and sorted, we've IPO'd and, you know, we're the next Google, I think um, I'd like to, 
I'd like to open up my own range of cinemas, to be honest. Uh, I think I'd like to make them free 24-7 and just show my favourite movies because there's nothing I like more and there's nothing I get more inspired by than, you know, good movies. And uh, I'd like to bring that back and share it to the world, to be honest. Awesome. Well, Matt, again, thanks for being a guest on the show. I appreciate you carving out the time and uh, I can't wait to see what happens next with Honey. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your time, Michael. Cheers, mate.